So we've been embracing Western culture for quite some time, right? But I start seeing now like the other way around. And that's really exciting. And I think it just really brings us close together. So whether it's someone that's never hair oiled before and they're hair oiling and they're like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. They're embracing our culture, uh, as simple as that is. And so the more that they do that to us, we start kind of creating this cycle of we're all just lucky to be who we are and we can learn from each other. We don't want to be someone else. We want to be ourselves. Besharam, Batamiz, Chi Chi, Gandhi, Jalhata, Toba Toba, Oho, Bad Betty. I'm Sangeeta Pillai, and this is the Masala Podcast. This multi-award-winning feminist podcast for and by South Asian women is all about cultural taboos from sex, sexuality, mental health, menopause, to nipple hair, and more. This season is a US special, and it took me by surprise. You see, I interviewed these incredible South Asian American women I expected to hear some angst around identity and belonging. Instead, they told me how comfortable they were with both their South Asian and American identity. I confess, this is not the podcast season I set out to record. It's so much more powerful. Talking with Michelle Ranavat took me back to my own roots. Michelle is the founder of Ranavat a skin and hair care brand based on age-old Ayurvedic traditions as well as modern science. Michelle, who used to work in the pharmaceutical industry, used her engineering background to create a line of skin and hair care products that honour her South Asian heritage. Founded in 2017, Renavat recently became the first Ayurvedic skincare brand to launch at Sephora. In fact, I saw a really sweet social media video of Michelle's dad at Sephora checking out her products on the shelves. Michelle's journey to becoming a successful entrepreneur is so grounded in her South Asian culture. And she inspired me to connect back to my own roots. I actually loved engineering and my parents never forced me to do it. My dad's actually not, he's a chemist. So sciences were something that was always very important in our family, but my mom is an artist. So there was always that appreciation for arts and design. And I don't think they, you know, forced anything upon us. Um, But I saw, you know, growing up being a part of my dad's story. I mean, you know, all of our family vacations were work trips or my dad's business and what he started when he came to this country was really what my upbringing was about. And I saw so much of the world through him growing his business. And I think entrepreneurship just kind of came naturally to me because I saw that as my dad's career path. And then when you add, you know, passion for science and engineering, I mean, if you look at any of my cousins, we're all engineers and, you know, very stereotypical, but I think we embrace it. I think all of us did it and really love it and are passionate about it. I personally am very involved in the College of Engineering, even now, finding ways to attract uh, students and especially women into the major, because I just find so much value in it. 
but I agree that, you know, it's not the only path, but I think it's a great one. Uh, so I'm almost, I kind of have that old school mentality, I think. No, no, it's great. Look at what you've done with it. You know, it's not, are you going the expected path, but what are you doing with it? You know, I think mm. there's an aspect of go down the expected path and be very safe. I mean, you've certainly not been the safe choice. You know, you've not said, oh, I'm going to have this job for 50 years, you know. So I don't think yeah. you've definitely gone down that path. So talk to me, Michelle, about Renavat, um, your whole kind of journey, kind of starting it at home to now this, I don't know, global luxury brand. How did it all begin? Uh, you know, it all began with the idea and a dream, really, you know, just kind of thinking about creating something that represented a little slice of Indian history, Indian artisanship, craftsmanship, science behind you know, modern science all began in India. And so I was very passionate about sharing that and giving that spotlight where I feel like it was just not shared uh, traditionally. And I never envisioned to create like, oh, I'm going to create this global company and get to travel and connect with uh, South Asians and introduce the concept of Ayurveda to you know, so many beyond the South Asian community, I was honestly just really happy doing the work, discovering or rediscovering these traditions or ingredients and just living my life with its purpose tied to my heritage and culture. That's really all I ever wanted. And, and that's what I still want. You know, I think some of the, you know, launching in Herod's and Sephora and all of that is amazing. And that was, of course, as someone that's ambitious, something that I would have loved to accomplish, but it was never the goal. It was always a byproduct. And the goal is always to serve the customer. And I knew that if I could serve the customer in a way where they felt connected, I mean, I, I, I'll actually try to pull something up. I received a very sweet message and it's very indicative of the way people connect and feel when they try the product and that just summarizes my goal which is to make people feel something oh that's really beautiful did it literally start in your home because i remember watching something on instagram where you said i used to, sh I used to ship these products from home and now you know there's this massive kind of chain behind me did it start at home yeah, it started at home. I mean, I didn't. How? Tell me, tell me. And I think honestly, most ideas probably start in the home, right? I mean, we come up with something we want to do mm. and we just pull out our laptops and we start mood boarding and Googling and researching. And that's really how our brand started too. And, you know, in the typical South Asian way, I didn't just decide I wanted this idea and then started spending a ton of money and being like, oh, I need an office and I need these people to work for me and I need this. And, you know, no way, you know, I was still working my other job and I wanted to prove out this idea because, you know, at that time, it's not like Indian beauty brands did not exist. Like it's such a weird, I mean, in the US, um, but it's such a weird thing to think about, but it wasn't like the idea of even hair oiling Yes. was an odd concept. And now yes. because we've all kind of come together and championed and we've been, you know, messaging and sharing for five years now, it's really surfaced into the mainstream. But back then, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, I had a big idea and all of a sudden I was ready to spend, you know, whatever it took. It was all about proving out the idea. 
And over time, we created a business where we could afford to invest in office space and people and, you know, everything that goes along with running a business. So true what you just said there about, you know, the traditions that for us are so natural, you know, the hair oiling that you mentioned. I was thinking about it like it was such a, you know, coming from South India, it was such a part of a daily ritual. You kind of oiled your hair and then you had a bath and that was kind of what you did every day. But I remember when you went outside, even Mumbai where I grew up, a lot of kids would make fun of me saying, oh, look at her oily hair, you know, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's so much judgment sometimes of rituals that maybe are specific to your heritage, outside of that heritage. So it gets me a bit annoyed now that, you know, everybody's drinking turmeric lattes and you know, <laughs> using coconut oil in their food. And these are rituals and traditions that we've had for thousands and thousands of years, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a little, there's a few ways to look at it. I mean, when I started the brand, there was a huge wellness boom. You know, people mm-hmm. were really, you know, focused on meditation, especially during the pandemic. People were really excited about meditation. Obviously, yoga for so many years has been, uh, you know, permeated in the West. And this whole smoothie culture had really started in LA. And, you know, like, what kind of adaptogens would you like to put into your smoothie? And people would pay like 10, 20, $30 for like an ashwagandha smoothie. And they would call it wellness, which is fine. But I think the goal that or really the responsibility that many of us have, especially if we are South Asian, we understand the roots. We need to share the origins and we need to tell people the why, you know, this is not a new trendy thing, but adaptogens are really great for managing stress. Why is that important? Well, stress creates inflammation. You know, how do we create a long balanced, healthy life, you know, ongoing meditation, exercise for the brain. And those ideas, you know, are things that I think we have the opportunity to share because we are a little more, we're just a little closer to the history of it. And so while I think I'm so glad that however it's happening, that people are seeing value in our traditions, but so long as I'm a part of this conversation, I really want people to understand the why, um, not to prove anything, but to really share the deeper meaning behind all of these rituals. Even something like Gajal, right? It's so beautiful, but there's a huge meaning in terms of, you know, evil eye and, you know, that aspect of it, you know, what beauty and how that relates, like eyes being windows to the soul. The They're just, a, it's just deeper than a beauty product. And how can we share those really authentic stories that might have been lost along the way when we're in a drugstore and pulling an eyeliner? How can we tie that to what the real origins of why we even wear eyeliner exist? And that's what I want to bring to the world. I have this memory of my mother making kajal, which is homemade eyeliner. She followed traditional ways, which she probably learned from her mother. The memory is faint and fuzzy. I remember her using camphor, the gorgeous, fresh smell of it. Mom would use a homemade wick or dia for a flame. Maybe there was castor oil or coconut oil, I'm not sure. But I do have a memory 
of her covering the flame with a small copper plate. And the next morning, this black sooty kajo would form on the plate. My mum would scoop this up and use the kajo to line my eyes. I still remember the gentle, cooling feeling of camphor in my eyes, which used to make me want to curl up and go to sleep. Then, mum would use the kajal to put a big black dot on my cheeks for nazar, to protect me from the evil eyes. That still makes me smile. I still have a photo of me with lots of dark, sooty kajal in my eyes and a big dot on my face. In this world of, you know, where we're consuming and even self-care is a thing we're doing. You know, we're like, oh my mm. God, you've got to do this, got to do that. Why are you putting kajal in your eyes? Why are you oiling your hair? What's the actual, the kind of almost scientific reason? Because Ayurveda is science, you know. So I think this education that you're doing to the world about these products or these rituals is really, really meaningful. And I'm so glad you're doing it. It's it's fantastic, actually. Well, thank you. And I think one thing I just want to mention, uh, it kind of ties back to your original question about engineering. And I think I ask these questions and I want to know the why all the time, because that's the engineering mindset that I have with me that I bring to everything that I actually do want to know what is the science behind Ayurveda? Why does putting oil in your hair benefit your hair and scalp? And so digging into that, you end up coming out with a lot of science-based reasoning, mm. which is such a universal language, right? If I told you that balancing your scalp and there's a reason that oil can balance your scalp and in turn, you know, increase microcirculation of this area to why that can promote hair growth, doesn't matter what language, if you know anything about Ayurveda, you're excited because we're talking about science. It's universal. So that's it's just such a kind of full circle moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk to you about Ayurveda. So I'm a huge kind of advocate of it. I went to this Ayurveda hospital in Coimbatore, did the whole 21-day panchakarma, changed my diet completely based on a lot of things they said to me. But I've really seen the benefit and the kind of reasoning and, like you say, the science behind it, right? Mm -hmm. What role has Ayurveda played in your life and your work? I mean, it is my life. So it's it's every moment of every day is Ayurveda for me. I mean, whether it's the work aspect, but even when we launch a product, we actually, we really start with Ayurveda itself to think about what are concepts that haven't really been popularized. So for example, we just launched our Lotus Cleansing Bomb. One thing we talk about is dincharya. Dincharya is about having a routine and having a ritual and how important that is. And it's a, you know, not a crazy complex concept, but we really like to use these moments as an opportunity to share the Ayurveda toolbox with others. How can we make dincharya practical to everybody? Um, how can we just increase awareness to the benefits of having a routine? And so we actually work with an Ayurvedic practitioner, Kirti, she's amazing. And, you know, we we sort of partner with each other all the time because I, I have an engineering, as you know, background, but she really comes from someone that studied Ayurveda. And I always kind of have this respect and I want to shine a light on the practitioners 
because they've really spent their lives studying. And I want to do justice to the fact that it's not just something that like, oh, I'm going to read a couple articles and say that I'm an Ayurvedic expert. Like I'm not an Ayurvedic expert. I'm an engineer and I love formulation and I Ayurveda is an inspiration for me, but I'm actually not an expert. And so that's why we really like to happen to people like Kirti and make sure that we're doing justice and not just saying anyone can be some Ayurvedic expert. So we really like to do that. But in doing that, we enrich so much of our own knowledge when it comes to these amazing practices. And it's such a great thing for people in our community because they can take little pieces of it and add it to their life. Ayurveda is a system of health and healing that's thousands of years old. I rediscovered Ayurveda a few years ago, going back to India for a 21-day Panchakarma program, which is sort of a cleansing and balancing program for the body, mind and spirit. You see, Ayurveda says it's all connected, that we are one being, and therefore you can't treat the body and the mind as separate. I stayed in this beautiful Ayurvedic retreat in South India and really learned about myself. It has led me to make massive changes in my diet, in my lifestyle. And I can really see the benefits in my body and in my life. Everything from Dhinacharya, which is a daily routine that I follow, to the foods that I put into my body, to the media that I consume, I can see how it all affects me. I've really loved going back to my roots, back to Ayurveda. I wanted to talk to you about Ranavat and the ingredients, because I know you talk about this a lot, mm. that you source the ingredients from the source, I think, mm. which is wherever it's coming from, whether it's saffron, whether it's whatever you're using. And you go to a lot of Indian towns and villages and cities, I'm guessing. Could you talk about why this is important to you? And I also know that you work with a lot of artisans who've been doing that particular preparation or creating that for thousands of years, so they know what they're doing. Oh, yeah. And that very much is the ethos of your brand, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's two aspects of it. One is the science and formulation. So you have to go where the plants are the freshest and where they exist, right? So number one, it's understanding the whole supply chain. How long is it taking from when the flowers are blooming to when you're uh, actually extracting the oils? What's the process of extraction? Once it's extracted, where is it stored? What's the movement? How quickly do they move? How are the batches? So there's a lot that goes into, you know, when you just pump a product in your hands, there's, there's really such a huge, vast supply chain behind that all the way down to like a farmer or uh, someone mixing, you know, all the way to where you get it today. And so understanding that process is hugely important to me because it impacts the entire experience, the efficacy and the quality. And I think all of those things work hand in hand together. So I want to bring to people experiences that they like, for example, I actually found the note that this uh, woman sent, and this is just on a DM that she sent me yesterday. And she lives in uh, France and she's a South Asian living in France. And she said, after 25 years away from my homeland, your product not only makes my skin glow, but the aroma takes me back to my childhood memories. 
when putting jasmine on our hair while doing Bharatanatyam or while doing puja, we called it Malipu in the South. We had loose flower sellers walking the streets. And if we needed a garland, they would sit under the shade of the porch and the gentle breeze, we would smell the whiff of jasmine. That's giving me goosebumps. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, and she's stunning. saying that she's connecting to those moments yeah. because of our product and that we're bringing her back to this time in her life. And you can only do that if you have actual jasmine from that area that you're bringing. And between what happens, you know, when it's picked and, and you know, when I get it, there's so many things. So you have to go see that with your eyes and really understand the time in which it's picked. And so I really, in order to get that type of comment from someone that lives in France that I've literally never seen, and she's able to conjure these memories, and she feels so moved that she has to write me this message, there has to be something there that's really real and substantial in order for someone around the world to make that comment. And I think that kind of goes into the whole process and supply chain and why that's so hugely important to me. And then when it comes to artisans and your question about that, I think it goes back to luxury and defining luxury. For me, luxury isn't the most expensive thing in the world. Luxury is the most precious and precious to me means you know, if someone's making a Kansa wand, actually, this is a product that we're launching. It's a Kansa comb. And there's a lot of imperfections on this comb, but it's made handmade in Rajasthan, you know, by an artisan that's been doing it for six generations. And so it just means when you hold it in your hand, every imperfection and every little divot is really unique to this comb. And I just feel that there's something really powerful when I'm holding six generations of this work in my hand and I'm supporting these families and preserving this art form. Because we see that in fashion all the time, the embroidery and the karigars and all that, there's yeah. that whole concept beyond just fashion. And so that's kind of, you know, this tool, it's a beautiful object. Is it necessary for every person? No, it's not at all. But for people that really want a luxury that you can't buy, really. That's what this is. It symbolizes something more. Absolutely. And I think not only is it luxury, because it's that rare, but I guess with that work, you keep alive a tradition that's existed for thousands of years as well. You mm -hmm. know, that Kari girl who's making that comb in that particular part of Rajasthan, you know, it carries on. And I think that's really, really beautiful. Talking about beautiful and beauty, um, I wanted to talk about beauty being still very much a very Eurocentric concept that I see in the world. So whether it's magazines or fashion or advertising, beauty still more or less is, in my head, a skinny blonde woman, you know. Is this what you think as well? And how do we kind of change that? How do we make women like you and I and other people like us feel beautiful in this world? I think that it is very hard because for so many years we were told something. And so all of a sudden we've now had the approval to say or the realization to admit that, wow, there's so much beauty in what we do. It doesn't automatically happen that way. But I've always had a deep, deep sense of pride for our culture. And I do feel everyone's culture, you know, no matter what, where you come from, it's so, you're so lucky to be a part of wherever you're a part of. And I think that 
the more that we see people embrace each other. So we've been embracing Western culture for quite some time, right? Like we're obsessed with the sitcoms and we, you know, always wanted to be like those icons, you know, in friends and whatever. But I start seeing now like the other way around and that's really exciting. And I think it just really brings us close together. So whether it's someone that's never hair oiled before and they're hair oiling and they're like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. They're embracing our culture uh, as simple as that is. And so the more that they do that to us, we start kind of creating this cycle of we're all just lucky to be who we are and we can learn from each other. We don't want to be someone else. We want to be ourselves. And so I see that, but I think it takes a lot of time to unlearn those habits because, you know, for half of our lives, we've seen other people get the spotlight and those are the it girls, but it's changing. So I think we're making progress. We don't need to bring ourselves up by bringing other people down is, you know, it's not to say that, oh, well now, you know, we don't want to support those people. Now only these types of people are pretty. And it's, I don't really think we need to do that. I think we just need to be assured in who we are and be happy to be who we are as much as we can to find that gratifying or just to find that confidence inside because that emanates out and I think we'll all like there's no need to now saying oh well now it's our turn and we have to only you know focus on this one type of person because then we're doing what was done to us so let's just all celebrate who we are and you know come together that's sort of my mentality. Hey, I wanted to pause this episode for a minute to share something that I'm really excited about. Podcasting changed my life. I went from typing into Google, what is a podcast? Yes, I did that. To creating the multi-award-winning Masala podcast. And now I'd like to share some of my knowledge with you. I'm starting podcasting masterclasses on my website. And one of them has been created especially for women podcasters. Just go to my website, soulsutras.co.uk and look under courses. Or email me at podcasting at soulsutras.co.uk and I'll share details with you. I look forward to helping you on your podcasting journey. जान लीजिए वो क्या है ना दिल किसी मैनुअल के साथ नहीं आता डूज एंड डोंट्स की कोई लिस्ट भी नहीं है इसीलिए आपके सवाल और मेरे जवाब हाय मैं हूं एकता सुनिए डीकोड दिल अ स्पॉटिफाई ओरिजिनल एपिसोड आउट एवरी वेंसडे आई आल्सो वांटेड टू टॉक अबाउट ब्यूटी फ्रॉम अ साउथ एशियन एंगल यू नो इट्स वेरी लिमिटिंग इट्स व्हाट इज अ typically beautiful south asian women like bollywood stars for example you know they have their fair skin they have long hair a tiny waist you know so they are a particular type and most of us don't fit that i mean regular south asian women don't how do we broaden that ideal of beauty within our own culture do you think i mean bollywood is uh let's just say maybe not the most fair or wholesome yeah industry and i think there's a lot of broken things in bollywood and you know i 
I think it would be really hard to completely dismantle this industry that has been fueled by whether it be stereotype, you know, pushing certain type of look, pushing certain type of families, pushing, you know, and it's, I think it's pretty well known that it's not like I would say a healthy mm. industry, the way that it's been crafted. But I also think some of it is like, you are what you see and do. So if you don't want to consume that media and you want to understand or take it for the surface level that it is knowing the problems that it has. I think that's okay. Yeah. Um, because Bollywood is, you know, I love Bollywood songs and I, yeah, you know, there's yeah, things yeah. that I love, so I'm not going to shun the whole thing, but I also yeah, recognize yeah. it has yeah. a lot of problems and a lot of issues. <laughs> it doesn't treat a lot of people well. And I yeah. know that that's an issue. Yeah. And so I think it's just one, bringing awareness to that. And then two, taking it for that surface level and hoping that that changes and it has to change because I don't think that will last forever. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, I just hope, I mean, I have no control of Bollywood, but yeah, yeah, if I did, yeah, I yeah. would love to <laughs> make a change. Absolutely. It's beyond Bollywood, though, isn't it? And that's what I mean. You know, the idea of beauty in our culture is very narrow. Uh, Bollywood is one big example of it. But even within that, so say you go to a wedding and auntie might say, oh, you're too thin or you're too fat or you're too whatever, you know? It's a very narrow lens, I think. And I think that's quite problematic. So as much as the Western world has this one stereotypical image of beauty, so does South Asian culture. I think that's my kind of query rather. I mean, not that I expect you to give me an answer, but it's more a, you know, this is not okay. And, you know, we need to change it. And how do we change it? I think it is changing a lot. I mean, again, not living in India, but I've seen more inclusive campaigns. I feel mm. that, I mean, even in brands like Papa Don't Preach, like they don't even have yeah. sizes on their product. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, they're showcasing different types of people. So they're, you know, they're one example of the way that the next generation of Indian brands are really positioning beauty. So yes, you know, the fair and lovely era was there and did exist. Mm -hmm. You know, you could go into a lot of detail on why we felt Mm -hmm. that way and what was the influence Mm -hmm. and why did we Mm -hmm. not want to be who we were? And Mm -hmm. like, that's a whole traumatic past, but Mm -hmm. I do think that Indian companies and brands and Indian people themselves are starting to wake up a bit and realize that we were, you know, people there were very much in a bit of a trance and Mm. we have to wake up to accepting and not putting down our own selves. It's a very, very sad, actually, uh, concept. If you really think about it, we were taught to not love who we were. But I really do feel very optimistic. I have to say, like looking at this new generation of brands, who they're showcasing, the conversations, it's amazing. So there's so much promise. And yes, we could look back on the history and see how backwards it was. But let's look to the future and, you know, to Cole Gandhi, let's be the change that we hope to see. So that's kind of what I'm hoping for. Um, I also wanted to talk about beauty in the context of growing older, you know? Again, traditionally in the West and in the East, beauty has been considered the preserve of young people. And as women, we're told that the, only the young are beautiful. And as we age, we are less so. That really bothers me. And I think we need to 
find ways to um, stop the world making us feel bad about what is a really natural, beautiful process, aging. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost 42. And so I definitely have signs of aging as one would naturally. You know, I think it's there's a difference between finding that pride to take care of yourself, but then, you know, that can go in the wrong direction if you are overly like trying to preserve yourself in a 20 year old figure, because that's obviously just going to get disappointing at some point, because, you know, that's not the case. And I think that there is a part of work that we have to do ourselves. Yes, of course, like people are focusing on Gen Z and marketing and, you know, a lot of the models that we see, or, you know, it's, it is hard. There's always this external stimulus of what, what does a 40 year old look like? And how do we fit into that? But I also feel like there's some work that we have to do ourselves in accepting and coming to terms with our changing bodies and finding joy in that process. And it's, it's not easy at all. Um, But I think it's work that we have to do ourselves. And it's hard work, because despite everything around us, that's telling us that aging is not good, we have to somehow find it within ourselves. But I think it's an important exercise that we all have to do. Do you not find like that's almost an impossible thing if if around, like, and I talk about it personally also, you 45, I'm 50. So all around, when the message is very much young is beautiful, young is beautiful, and we've all got to aspire to look younger, to be younger somehow. I think, and it's a, it's a question to myself and to you, I think. I mean, I don't like aspire to look younger, but I aspire to look good at my age. And I think there's mm. like a difference between mm. that. Like I, it's funny when I was at home with my parents, my dad was saying that when my parents got married, I'm the age that my nanny was. And so when we think about how old my nanny was when my parents got married, we're like, oh my God, she's wearing a sari. She's like older, whatever. And Mm -hmm. I'm that age right now. And so some of it is just like, first of all, the average age, the life expectancy in India was much lower at that time, even 40 years ago, things have changed. We were living a lot longer. So now the actual acceptance of aging is coming into play more because then we have longer lives to live. So we're actually like, you know, in this above 40 phase for longer than we've ever been. Uh, So it's kind of new territory, but it's also like what she was doing at her age, like she was getting her kids married. I have like Mm -hmm. a seven-year-old. So it's a very Mm -hmm. different uh, phase in how old we are acting and the phases of life that we're interacting with. And I do think that, yeah, I mean, what we thought was older is like changing now. Like what someone can do in their forties is very different. And my dad was like, oh my God, sixties is so young and seven. And I think that too. And I think it, I have to say, I do think at the perspective, it's shifting, but I don't have like a real answer other than it has to come from within. This Mm. acceptance has to come from within. There's no, yes, you're going to be, we could create a world where everyone celebrates aging fine. I I don't think that's going to happen in our lifetime, but let's say that it does. I still think it's going to be hard. It's not easy. I think it's just up to us. How can we accept where we are in life and enjoy the moments and the aging that we've done and understand that we're not going to be happy about it all the time. Who's going to be happy when like it hurts to get up. You're not as can't celebrate that. Like that's of Of course, course. but you can find ways to appreciate where you are in life. And I think if I asked you like, 
would you want to, you know, I remember those days where we live in New York and we just want to go out all the time. And, and I was like, oh, I can't believe a day where I'll want to stay in. And now I'm like, I don't even yeah. want to do anything. So I love like, staying in. Yeah. And you that's just need to like get over stuff, you know, maybe yeah. you get yeah. over certain things yeah. and maybe you just come to accept, or maybe you don't want yeah. to do the things that maybe you don't care about, get over the idea of, yeah. you know, having a forehead wrinkle. I think yeah. that is what naturally happens. Yeah. Um, but it has to come from within, you know, being in the beauty industry myself, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking your best. And I think that's mm-hmm. very different than yes. looking younger. Agreed. Agreed. So that's like a huge point of differentiation that I want to make. It's like, we're not trying to be who we're not. We're just trying to feel really good in the skin that we have. So we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but I really wanted to touch upon this, the, the kind of beauty of ritual. You know, the rituals and the traditions we come from, the hair oiling, the Diwali morning. I don't know if you do that in your part of uh, India, but in the south, you wake up and you have this warm oil bath on Diwali morning. Yeah, I I haven't done that, to be honest. Yeah, Um, you know, I've started doing that in London. I live on my own, but every Diwali, I wake up really early and I warm up uh, sesame seed oil, til ka til. And I do this warm oil and I feel really warm inside, like my stomach feels warm. It's such a beautiful kind of feeling and it feels very special. So I wanted to talk about why these rituals were important and why they are so good for our sense of well-being. Why do you think that is? Yeah, you know, ritual, the definition of it is actually simple act of devotion. So it can be, you know, a ritual for religious purposes. It can be like your Diwali ritual. But this act of devotion, you know, whether it's to someone else, to ourselves, I think there's something to be said about the word devotion and what that means to us mentally, right? Or spiritually, I will say. And I really do think there's something beautiful about the concept of, you know, devoting your time, your energy, your mind share to something that's been done with your family for generations and taking a moment to connect with that part of yourself. There's something about ritual, whether it has nothing to do with, you know, where you're from, but something that makes you feel really good today. You can set new rituals. It's this idea of combining habit, which gets back to Dancharya, and outward devotion or some sort of spiritual connection, whether that be religious to your own roots and ancestors. And I think that that gives us a mental compass and a reminder that we're here today and this is really precious and we're valuing the moment now. And we could go on and once we get to our desk, we're really busy and we're focusing on all of our emails. But that moment that we were doing our ritual, we actually stopped time for a moment and lived in the present. So I really think it's a way that we live in the now and we appreciate the moment. Um, and I, I think the same with, you know, going to temples and religious ceremonies, like really there's something there that feels very grounding. The oiling of hair is a very South Asian ritual shared between mothers and daughters for millennia. On Saturday mornings, my mother would warm up coconut oil on this kerosene stove in our Mumbai home. She'd heat it up to smoking point until we could smell the coconut all over our little home. Then she'd get me to sit down on the tiled floor 
with my legs crossed in front of me. She'd perch behind me on a little stool so she could reach all my long, dark hair. We'd spend an hour there, my mother and I. She'd massage every inch of my scalp with the oil, letting it soak into the length of my long hair, which by then had grown past my hips. With every stroke of her hands heavy with the coconut oil, I'd feel my limbs grow heavy with love. It was the only physical expression of love I ever remember from my mum, and I still treasure it. I wanted to talk about self-care. It's this kind of buzzword for the last couple of years, and everybody that we know on Instagram or anywhere else is like, this is my self-care ritual, and I journal, and I do this, and I do that. But self-care doesn't have to be like 20-step skincare routine or spending thousands in a spa or any of that, right? Self-care can be simpler than that, right? Yeah, I think self-care is a mindset, right? It's lighting and in, what is the intention behind it? Because I could do a skincare ritual and just like be really quick about it. And that's not really self-care. That's just me doing cleaning my face, cleansing my face for a purpose. But if I make it more of a, you know, mentally, I'm like, ooh, this is a, I'm thinking different thoughts and I'm, you know, using special products and I'm making it a ceremony and I'm just like, so it's all about intention that you have. And so it's drawing and pairing that intention with the process or act and combining those two together. What can we do? So if, if, if you were to give advice, say to me, to say, Sangeeta, here are th three things. Here's how you could approach it. This evening when you're putting on your makeup, uh, removing your makeup and putting on your moisturizer, what do I think about that makes it more self-care, that makes it more of that moment? I mean, for me, of course, I'm very biased, but I that's why I love using our products is because the scent and the texture are very sensorial. So it's very easy to put yourself in that ritualistic mindset when you're using them. You know, saffron itself is very meditative and anti-anxiety. So when you're putting saffron on your third eye, this is such a very like important uh, of your intuition. And so you can dig into that and say, yeah, when I'm putting the saffron serum is very easy because of the ingredients and what they're known for and the sense and the ideas that they conjure up for you to feel like it is a ritual. So, you know, I think that makes it a lot easier. So that that is why and how I, I don't think it it definitely has to be so elaborate, but it's really in that in that intention, that moment. And that is one way that I love connecting. I love that. Absolutely love that. Why do you think it's important for young brown girls to see someone like you in magazines, to see your products in their beauty shelf? What does that do for a little girl in a, another small town in America today? I mean, I think there are a few things. I mean, of course, you know, from a product perspective, being able to see a hair oil that maybe, you know, we grew up with feeling maybe shy about, you know, the fact that it's at Harrods very exciting for us because we get to see our traditions in a way that maybe we didn't get the opportunity to see. So I think it yeah. is really important to show their value very much in a superficial way, but it is still kind of nice. I mean, to have that representation for our rituals in those types of places that they've never been before. So I think that's like very validating. And then uh, I think one thing that I hope to bring out more is, 
you know, there's there has been all of focus on kind of youth and being this entrepreneur, you know, 30 under 30 kind of thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's great. Find your ambition early and tap into it. But that's not the only way. And, you know, I want people to see that moms with kids are doing things, you know, people that don't have kids that are, you know, like you in their fifties, like living their dream and hosting this amazing show. Like that's such a great example um, that you're creating, but it's really that different archetypes of success. Like you don't have to be this like cookie cutter mold of what we think success looks like. So I really hope to see more examples of that. So if five-year-old Michelle was sitting here with us, you had something to say to her. What would you say as this Michelle who's created this amazing brand and is this success story? What would you say to five-year-old Michelle? I would say trust the journey, I guess. And, you know, that's something that I feel like our parents say to us and we just say, well, you don't understand because it's so painful now, you know, whether I got laid off from my finance job or, you know, moved from New York, I never wanted to leave and come to LA and and all these changes were so hard for me, but they actually were putting me in the right place. And I think that's what I've learned now, having lived over 40 years, I can say that I now finally see those pieces come together. You have to live long enough to understand that. Yeah. So trust the journey that it will all work out for the best. Yeah, that, that mm. it's happening for you, not to you kind of thing. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And that's a huge difference, what you just said there. Finally, have you got any advice for listeners of Masala Podcast? Anything that you'd like to say to them? Um, you know, I would say that, you know, I guess it depends on, you know, what their perspective in life is. But I would say if there's something that you can do kind of back to ritual and think about instead of going through the motions every day and crossing things off your to-do list, take a bit of a different approach and think about what things you might want, like kind of instead of your schedule running you, you running your schedule. Is it, you know, a beautiful elaborate skincare routine in the evening that you can look forward to every now and then? Is it something special that you're treating yourself? Is it this incense? You know, what are what is something really simple and special and it doesn't have to cost anything for you to just add as a moment of joy, a moment of reflection and intention in your day? Um, I would just love to encourage people to think about that. Thank you, Michelle. It's been an absolutely lovely conversation. Thank you for taking the time and talking about your journey and all the ways that we can kind of add these little rituals in our life that make it a lot richer. Thank you for being a Masala podcast. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Masala podcast. Masala podcast is part of my platform, Soul Sutras dedicated to celebrating and supporting South Asian women. This is a space for all of us bad babies who don't do as we're told. This is where we get to celebrate our culture our way and be exactly who we want to be. I'd love to hear from you. Get in touch via email at soulsutras.co.uk or my website soulsutras.co.uk. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. Just look for Soul Sutras. Masala Podcast was created and presented by me, Sangeeta Pillai, produced by Anushka Tate, opening music by Sunny Robertson. Besharam, Batamiz, Gandhi, hi hi.
bad beti another lovely podcast is called that desi spark hosts nehal tinani and anika sharma talk about topics that impact their dual south asian american identity i loved listening to their interview with my three ramakrishna from never have i ever that desi spark is making bold statements on all things brown go listen on all podcasting platforms